The text for Pastor John's sermon this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are equal, and each shall receive his wages according to his labor. For we are fellow workers for God. You are God's field. God's building. In a very short time, for some, a year, for some, five years, for some, fifty, in a very short time, a vapor's breath on a February morning, according to Scripture, the only thing that will matter is the presence or the absence of God. When we die, all that will matter is are we swallowed up in the presence of His glory or are we swallowed up in the torments of outer darkness? In a very short time, for every person in this room, no matter how you judge it now, in a very short time, All that will matter is the presence or the absence of God. Now, it may be that this morning you don't have the imaginative power to even think about your death or about the entrance into an everlasting presence or absence of God. And so let me ask the question differently. Um... Peter and Cheryl, sitting down here in front, gave me an article last week from a Sumter County, South Carolina paper. Let me give you some sentences from that article. In St. Louis, one out of every four girls becomes pregnant before her senior year in public high schools. In Boston, last year, 55 students were expelled for carrying guns More than 2,000 students report to probation officers for past offenses. In Philadelphia, school administrator writes, people come to class high, but not just pupils, teachers as well. Filthy bathrooms, gang intimidation, nowhere to hang coats without them being stolen. Or take one pamphlet widely used among the public schools, quote, Accept sex for what it is, for whatever pleasure it gives you. And then it goes on to refer to the, quote, old mythology of saving sex for marriage, admitting that this is fine for some, as long as they, quote, don't hassle those who want something else, unquote. Or consider the, the, uh, the bloody dismembering of thousands of tiny, well-formed little babies every year, not primarily in a tragic crisis to save a mother's life, but in a political maneuvering of values which makes a woman's right not to be pregnant higher on the value scale than a baby's right not to be killed. 
Or consider the fabric of the family that God designed for the security and the nurturing of humble and disciplined and noble and righteous and intelligent boys and girls, unraveling so far in our culture that scarcely now does it provide even a safety net beneath the falling kids, let alone a warm and happy cocoon for the shaping of great young minds and hearts. And I ask you again, um, does this imply anything about the priority of God in our lives? Does the imminent departure into eternity imply anything about the priority of God? And does the collapse of Western American civilization imply anything about the priority and centrality of God in this church and through us in our culture? Is the collapse of our moral and social life in this country connected to the almost total absence of the biblical God in our entertainment, movies, TV, humor, music, art and drama, sports, advertising, science, business, travel, hobbies, medicine, counseling, even religion? The sheer absence of the greatest reality that exists the sheer absence of the reality for which everything was made, on which everything depends, and which is more beautiful and more powerful and more intelligent and more loving and more spectacular than all the realities in the world. Sheer absence, snubbing, disregarding, ignoring. Life goes on. In the absence of God in America, is there any connection between that and our quickening slide into barbarism? I don't think it's a merely personal opinion of my own, but rather a very deeply biblical insight that I'll try to get to in a moment. This is a sermon with 20 minutes of introduction and 10 minutes of exposition, by the way. I don't think it's a merely personal opinion. It's a, it's a biblical insight that the absence of the centrality of the biblical God of glory and grace is leading to the collapse of our civilization. It is very easy to picture sheer barbarism right around the corner. It takes no great imagination at all anymore. And when I think about this, and whenever I leave town, I tend to think a lot about this, and I was on the airplane for five or six hours this week, I think about the little 20 or 30 or 3 years or days that I may have left to minister. And I ask where, God, and how, God, can I be most decisively engaged? And I feel a very deep sense of calling as I come back to Bethlehem about the urgency to be a kind of person and to lead a kind of church that confronts our culture on at least two levels. The one level is understood by most and appreciated by all, inside and outside the church. The other level is understood by fewer and appreciated by few, inside and outside the church, I have found. Let me talk about these two levels for a minute at which I want to devote my life and I want this church to minister. The first level is caring for the casualties of a God-belittling 
culture, caring for the casualties of a God-ignoring and God-belittling culture. And when I say this, I don't mean that the casualties are godless. Many of them are Christians. Some of them are quite good Christians. I mean that the unweaving, the shredding, the unweaving of a God-centered fabric of, of life and society destroys a thousand protective moral patterns. Noble assumptions about life. Respectful behaviors in the city. Solid constraints upon evil and stable views of knowledge. They are being destroyed as the fabric of a God-centered society unravels. And when that firm and protective God-centered social life unravels, there are emotional, physical, spiritual casualties everywhere, inside and outside the church. The sins of the fathers and the grandfathers fall out upon the children. And when the God of the Bible is gone from education, home, business, commerce, art, statecraft, everyone pays, even the most godly. And so on one level, I feel very constrained to confront our culture myself and to build a church that confronts our culture by caring for the casualties of a God-ignoring culture. Now, that's the level that everybody appreciates. Everybody in our world and everybody in the church wants institutions to care for the casualties of our culture. And some people can only imagine that this is what a pastor should do. That's his whole job. And that's the job of the church. And that's it. And anything that smacks of anything else is not sensitive to the casualties of the age. And I want to say that that would be no small calling if that's all we did. It would be a great calling. But I am bound by my conscience and I believe by the word of God to confront Minneapolis, Bethlehem, American life, even if only in one little corner of our city, at another level. My vision of what we should be as a church includes this confrontation too. Not just my own personal sense of call, but what I believe the church is intended to be. In this kind of culture. And I can imagine some of you saying, Amen. Let's not just cope. Let's not just cope with the casualties of pornography. Let's get rid of it. Out of this city. To which I say, Amen. Let's do it. But that's not what I have in mind. And I can hear others saying, Amen. Let's not just cope and provide a decent disposal for these little torn up babies. And counseling after abortion. Let's stop it. And I say, Amen. Let's stop it. But that's not what I have in mind. Even though I myself 
returned my little postcard right away to David Michael saying, yes, I want to go show the eclipse of reason to our state representatives down at the Capitol and ask them how in the world they can be so pro-abortion in view of the slaughter of little babies like that movie so gruesomely depicts. And we'll go. But that's not what I have in mind. What I have in mind is the effort to get to the root of the rotten tree. The effort to find the hand that is unraveling the whole moral fabric of American culture. To go back up the river of social life to the source of the pollution and find out why in the last generation there has been a flood of drug addiction, pornography, boasted homosexuality, alcoholism, depression, unfaithfulness, divorce, abuse, eating disorders, insecurity, bitterness, power grabbing, greed. Why? Now, I believe the root of the rotten tree and the unraveling hand and the source of the pollution is the disregard of God in all his biblical glory and grandeur and grace. It might be a hostile disregard. Atheism, Islam. It might be a condescending disregard. Secular relativism. You can have your God. We have our Zen or our science. It might be a naive form. Bible-believing Christians who claim to know God and virtually absorb their values from television and not the Bible. The absence of a radical God-centeredness in all of life is the root problem of our culture and its collapse. And as I assess how to invest my little life most usefully to the glory of God and to the eternal good of the greatest number of people, I ask, who and what institution in our culture is going to both care for the casualties and go behind the casualties to the cause? And when I talk about the cause now, I have something far broader and deeper in mind than dysfunctional families. How did they get that way? Why are there so many of them? Who's asking that question and finding anything like a biblical theological answer that is being applied with force and effect upon the culture? Where do these forces that create the possibility and nurture the demise of these dysfunctional families come from. They come from the ignorance of and rebellion against the biblical God of grace and glory. They come from putting man where God belongs. That's the point of the first chapters of the Bible, isn't it? You'll be like God. 
You decide for yourself what's best. Don't let him tell you what to eat and what not to eat. You be the determiner of your life, not God. You can be like God. And that's the point of all the pages of the Bible, and that's the point of today's text as well, which we'll be through in just a minute. I am confronted mainly in this church with the task of seeing how this two-level confrontation works itself out in preaching. The rest of you have different spheres to think about. And it isn't an easy task. It's the greatest challenge of my life. On the one hand, I feel the need in my preaching to unfold the Word of God so that the casualties, which are all of us from one week or another, to unfold the word of God so that the casualties can survive one more week without giving up the faith, can find hope for one more week, can have faith and a rock underneath for one more week. That's a big responsibility that a pastor has. But on the other hand, I feel the the great burden to provide a vision of God that is being attacked by the secular air you breathe all day long. One hundred hours of your life, I reckon, you are being fed another message than you get here on Sunday. And I feel the need to lift up a great God and to warn you against the encroachments of secular values and assumptions and expectations that just breathe in without any thought into your brain and into your heart. Ways of thinking, ways of judging, ways of feeling, ways of living, assumptions, expectations, convictions, breathe in, not from the Bible, but from the television and the radio and the newspaper and magazines and billboards. And the air you breathe at the office all day long is another air than what blows from the kingdom of heaven. And somebody has to stand and say, watch out, watch out. You're being infected. I'm being infected. Be vigilant. And I know, I have heard, and I can see that the prophetic exaltation of God as the great need of our culture and a prophetic warning to watch out against the forces of our day is interpreted by some casualties on Sunday morning as simply a statement that if you just believe in the sovereignty of God, all your problems will go away. And that isn't the message. That isn't the message. The message is not simple and not individualistic. If enough people, if enough people over enough years of our life as a church, my little life of preaching and your life of ministering where you are, if enough people, wives and husbands and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and employees and employers, teachers and students would begin to shape their lives around the all-pervasive reality of a glorious, sovereign God, A garden of healing could grow up 
The chain of misery could be broken for generations to come. I said, there aren't many people who have this larger vision of what the ministry should be. I try to explain it to people and they just say, look, you should be talking more to the casualties. You should be talking specifically to this problem that that person brought this morning. And I say, yes, I know what you mean, but somebody, somebody has to lift up the big picture and say no to the culture and paint God because the reason all the casualties are here is because he's been forgotten. He's been ignored. The foundations have crumbled. The fabric is unraveled. If all we do is cope with casualties, we will not bless the next generation. Who is going to reweave the fabric of the cocoon of God-centered life. And so I believe one of the great missions of our church, and I think about this a lot in these days that span the 90s, is to reweave the fabric of God-centered lives and families, to rebuild the foundation of God's all-pervasive presence and influence in your lives and the lives of your children and your children's children and your children's children. Do you spend any time asking what sort of theology... What sort of cultural vision of life will bless your great-grandchildren the most today? Now, we turn to today's text, and Paul poses a question, I believe, or it's implicit. Why are these Corinthians so jealous of one another? Why is this community being ripped apart with strife and boasting and jealousy? And I think, I don't think it would be illegitimate to pour into the words jealousy and strife all the sins I've been talking about this morning. Just pour in your own favorite ugly sin and say, why? Why even in the church? Why in the last generation a flood tide? And Paul's answer in this text is the answer of the whole Bible. His answer is that the Corinthians are putting man where God belongs and they are failing to see God's all-pervasive sovereignty. And so what Paul does is reverse it. He goes through and he puts man back in his lowly place and God back in his exalted place reorients and turns back right side up the cultural life of Corinth and establishes God on the throne. And I think we can see this in seven brief, quick statements. Let me just give them to you with a sentence of comment under each one. Number one, verse five, we are servants, but God is the master. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Not owners, not masters. I ask you, who goes into a house and begins to boast in the maids and waiters and brag about them and line up behind them? Boast in the Lord, the master. Sentence number two. God is the object of your faith, not us. We are only pointing to him. Verse five again. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom, underline through, 
through whom you believed, not in whom you believed. When you get a letter from a lover in the mail, you don't fall in love with a mailman. Sentence number three. We did not make ourselves servants. We did not make you converts. God did. Verse five again. What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Here's the literal translation of the next phrase. As the Lord gave to each. The Lord gave to each. And it might refer to the assignments and the tasks and the roles of planter and waterer. Or it might refer to the fruit that comes from their ministry. God gave some to Apollos. God gave some to me. Both are true. I'm not sure which is implied here in the context. Both are true. And the point is, don't boast in the waterer and the planter. Boast in God. Sentence number four. Apollos and I planted and watered, but God alone can create spiritual life. Verse six. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, the unique, sovereign, life-giving authority and power of God puts him so far above us that our subordinate roles should not impress anyone by comparison to the impressiveness of God. See what he's doing at every point in this text? Lifting God up where he belongs and putting him and Apollos, us preachers, and all of us where we belong, down low. Number five, Apollos and I... Amount to nothing compared to God. He is all. He is all. He is all. That's the title of this message. Let God be all in Span the 90s. Let God be all in the new sanctuary. Let God be all in your family. Shape your whole life around the allness of God. Now, what does this mean? This is not 20th century talk. This is reprehensible to 20th century language. To call ourselves nothing. And here it is, explicitly stated in the Bible. Not an extrapolation of any theologian. What does he mean when he says, we are nothing? Hasn't he just said, we're planters, we're waterers? He's going to say in verse 9, I'm a fellow worker with God. That's something, isn't it? What do you mean, you are nothing? I hope you can get a handle on this. Nobody has a handle on this as far as I can see today. Just about nobody. I'm not sure I do either. But look, look. Yes, it's something to be a waterer and a planter and a fellow worker. Paul doesn't belittle his calling anywhere. But let's try for the next two minutes, to shape our way of thinking about the worth of man and the worth of God and how they relate to each other the way this text does. Today, almost all logic goes in one direction, namely like this. Since God stoops to use me in my lowliness, I'm really somebody. That's the way the logic tends to go today. Since God stoops to use me, I'm really somebody. Now, this text, the logic flows in the other direction. It's almost the same truth. 
just a different slant and direction, one manward, one Godward. The best way to see the way the logic flows in Paul's mind is to look at the closest analogy for explaining what human nothingness means in Paul's mind. Turn back a chapter to chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. I want to show you a good commentary on what he means when he says he's nothing. Let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. You call that nothing? Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that. Why? Why? No one might boast in the presence of God. And if we finish the text, everyone might boast in the Lord. Now, let's compare the two kinds of logic that are going on here. One 20th century, one biblical. The 20th century says, God chose to use me. True. Therefore, aren't I somebody? The Bible's conclusion is, God chose to use me, therefore... Isn't God something in his grace that he'll take a nothing and use it to save sinners? If we could just feel it, if we could just feel the difference in those two sentences. Oh, what a God-centered, God-glorifying, happy people we would be. Yes, he stoops to use us in our nothingness. Yes, he makes something of us. But isn't the biblical orientation, what a God, what a God, what grace. And if, if that doesn't come through, forgive me for getting angry at the logic of our day. We get the pleasure of being chosen Mark that. We get the pleasure of being chosen. God gets the glory of choosing things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Number six, the sixth statement. Apollos and I are not competitors but allies with a common goal. And in the end, God will give rewards, not you, Corinthians. Verse eight. He who plants and he who waters are one literally, are one, and each shall receive his reward for wages. I think that has bad connotations. The word misthos, generally reward, according to his labor. In other words, if, if there's any difference between me and Apollos, Paul says, let God, who knows the hidden purposes of the heart, according to chapter 4, verse 5, let God, in the end, be the final judge and give us our rewards. Don't you try to set one above the other and then boast in one above the other. We're one. We're up to the same goal, whether one waters or one uh, plants. Treat us as one. Don't elevate. Don't make us competitors. Don't do that on the Bethlehem staff. And finally, number seven, and we're done. We are workers with God on the farm, in the building, but God owns it and God owns us. Verse nine, for we are fellow workers for God. You are God's field and God's building.
In summary then, Paul's answer to why there was pride and boasting and strife at Corinth and why American civilization is collapsing is that we are putting man where God belongs and failing to see the all-pervasive sovereignty of God. And so I conclude with an inference for Span the 90s that goes like this. If it is God's will that we build a new sanctuary, and I love Les Anderson's text last Sunday night. What a great answer to that question. I said, are you excited about the future, and what do you think about what's coming? And and Les quoted that great text from James. Uh, Don't say, tomorrow we will go up to such and such a city to buy and get gain. Say, if the Lord wills, we will go up and spend and get gain. And he just applied it to the sanctuary. So, right on, if the Lord wills, we'll build a sanctuary. But now I'm going to add to that this. In view of what we've seen here, we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if we build, God intends to be all in this building. God intends to be all in this building. And therefore, we can assume that he will prosper our efforts to the degree that we grant to him this exalted place of being all in our hearts, in our church, and in our ministry. If we will be the kind of church who will both care for the casualties of a God-belittling age and confront that age with the all-consuming, all-pervasive glory and grace of a sovereign God. And I'd like to end this morning... By singing a song with you, I think we have enough time. Let's turn to 337 and just let loose the praise that is inside our hearts for the greatness of this God and give him the place he belongs in our hearts and in our community this morning. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Let's sing all of these verses. Shall we stand?